All right, let's everybody find their seats. All right, let's uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather here together to worship you, Father. I ask that you would help me as I teach, that I would teach nothing but the truth, and that I would teach clearly, Father. And I ask for all those listening that uh, they would hear and be edified by uh, the truths that are spoken today. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we will be going through chapter 29 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And this chapter is on baptism. It's of baptism. And I must admit that I was actually very excited when I, was, uh, when I realized I was going to be teaching on this chapter. I like being a Baptist. Uh, I like credo-Baptist teaching um, and that it's a guard against, um, against uh, unregenerate church membership. It helps keep our church, uh, churches pure from wolves. Um, and one of the reasons I became a Baptist was uh, because I recognized there are a lot of churches out there that are filled with uh, apostates, and including the one that I, I came from. They're filled with false converts. And one of the reasons for this was the baptism of infants, because you had all these people that thought they were Christians because they were baptized, when really they had never been converted. Um, not that it's only Pado-Baptist churches that have this issue. Obviously, we recognize that there are many Baptist churches that uh, baptize people that don't credibly profess faith in Christ, but uh, it doesn't help when you are um, baptizing those that are uh, you have no idea if they uh, are Christians or not. Um, uh, so in a day when uh, many churches are filled with apostates, we want to maintain the integrity of our church membership, not loosen it. Um, so as I said, we're going through chapter 19. Uh, the first question on your uh, handout should be outline the chapter. So I'm going to outline the chapter, and then we will actually read through the, uh, the um, chapter. It's not very long. Um, so chapter uh, 29, I might have said 19 before, it's chapter uh, 29. Um, uh, paragraph one is the spiritual significance of baptism. Paragraph two is the proper subjects of baptism. Uh, paragraphs three and four are the uh, deal with the outward elements, and they're broken into three parts. A, with the use of water, B, in the name of the Trinity, and C, by the immersion of the person. So uh, reading through uh, the chapter, that's uh, four paragraphs. Uh, one, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Paragraph two, those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Paragraph three, the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Paragraph four, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. So question two on your sheet, what is the meaning of baptism? Support your answer. So Waldron has um, three meanings of baptism that he, he, he associates, three meanings that he associates with baptism. The first is union with Christ. The second is uh, remission of sins. And the third is moral purification. So um, going through the first one here, union with Christ, could I get somebody to read Romans six verses three through five? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So you'll see, baptism, we are baptized into his death. We are united in his death, and therefore we will also be united in his resurrection. There's a unity going on there. Um, could I get somebody to read Colossians 2.12? 
illustrating the same idea. Very forgiving baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the living of God who raised him from the dead. Same idea there, being buried with him in baptism. We're with Christ in our baptism. Uh, moving on to the, the second point there, the remission of sins. Um, could I get somebody to read Acts twenty two sixteen? And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Yeah, the Greek word for baptism can also mean wash. So there's a symbology there of washing away your sins. And then uh, Revelation 7, 13 through 14, I'll read this. It doesn't contain the word baptism, but the concept is still there. Uh, and one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there's a, there's a uh, spiritual washing that's going on, that we are cleansed and we are right with God. Um, so baptism tells us that by faith we are united to Christ, forgiven and cleansed of our sin. And you'll note that all these are um, inward and invisible realities. They can't be seen. Obviously, we can see the fruits of it, but we can't actually see the inward change that's happened. Unlike the sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant, which was a visible sign, after baptism is done, no one aside for those that were there would ever truly know that it had taken place or not. It's an invisible sign on us, symbolizing the invisible change that's taken place. And I do want to be clear here um, that baptism does not impart the forgiveness of sins in of itself. Um, there's a couple uh, verses to talk about here. Could I get somebody to read First uh, Peter 3.21? So there is a little bit of a translational uh, issue here. Some translations will render it uh, the answer of a good conscience, or some will render it as an appeal to a good conscience. But regardless of which translation you have, the point remains. Baptism isn't effective because it's, it's some sort of washing, right? It's as an act of the believer that it's uh, effective, um, whether it be an appeal or the answer of a good conscience. It's the result of something that you've done. Um, sort of paralleling this idea, Romans 10, 9 through 11, uh, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So here, baptism isn't mentioned at all. Uh, but Paul, the same Paul that says that we're not justified by works of the law, but by faith, is now sort of making a distinction here between believing and confession. Because ultimately, there needs to be two aspects of your, of your faith. And that's, you know, you, you have the inward belief, but also that outward repentance. And baptism is always associated with, well, it's, it's associated with repentance. So that outward expression, baptism as an outward expression, we can say saves us in that sense. But it's not, uh, not in of the fact that we're just being washed. Baptism without repentance is meaningless. Um. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 1, um, 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So here, Paul's saying, I wasn't called to baptize, although he will go on to say that he did baptize some, but to preach the gospel. Because ultimately, it's the preaching of the gospel um, through which we are saved. It's the preaching and then hearing and believing on those words. And that's by, uh, how salvation comes to us. Um, are there any questions before we move on? All right. Question number three. Uh, does baptism symbolize both the blessings and demands of the gospel? Support your answer. So we might be unfamiliar with the language of demands of the gospel. Um, the way the gospel is presented in mainstream Christianity, it's almost like it's a request or an appeal. Like, And in some ways it is a request and an appeal, but it's actually also 
a demand. Um, could I get somebody to read Acts uh, 1730? The signs of ignorance God overlooks, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So uh, repentance is not merely a request. It's a command of God. And we don't actually have the right to not obey his commands. Um, Romans 10, 16, but they have not, all, oh, excuse me, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So there is such a thing as gospel obedience. So baptism symbolized both the blessings of being united to Christ and the demands of the gospel, that response. Um, and the reason why uh, Waldron is bringing this up in his question is because for the Pado-Baptist, they don't have a response aspect to the symbolism uh, because infants don't have a saving response to the gospel in that regard. There is no response. Um, and some will never appropriately respond to the, go- uh, to the gospel. We know this by um, experience. Um, we are Calvinists, and we believe that God sovereignly chooses from the foundation of the world who will be saved and in his timing causes those people to believe uh but we still need to respond to the gospel when we hear it we aren't hyper calvinists that believe that god can just regenerate us and then we're saved without actually having believed that 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 doesn't work we still need to actually believe in order to take hold of the promises in christ um so that response aspect of it is very important um and i think that this is only fully encompassed in the credo baptist uh view of baptism Does anybody have any questions or comments on that? All right. On to question four. What impact does the meaning of baptism have on the question of the subjects of baptism? So only those for which baptism would have any meaning should have it. Uh, We shouldn't go about baptizing the unbeliever prior to to them coming to faith because it has no meaning to them. They aren't united to Christ. They aren't forgiven of their sins. They aren't washed. Um, It's applying a a sign inappropriately to them. We therefore want to baptize only those that actually profess faith in Christ, because those are the only ones that we have any degree of certainty that it would actually apply to them. Ultimately, we all know that there are false converts that get baptized, but that's in spite of all that we know, not because of it. Um, the, uh, only those that profess faith are the ones that we can have any certainty that the sign has significance for them. Any questions or comments? Oftentimes in the past, people, parents would come and want their, want their children baptized because the parents believe that the kids did it. Well, as, as we'll go through, just because uh, the parents believe doesn't mean the promises is, is, uh, of salvation is to their children in that regard. People have left because we wouldn't baptize the children. Oh, well, if you're coming to a Baptist church, you should expect that we're not necessarily going <laughs> to do that. Um, there, are, there are plenty of other churches that will, will do that for you. But if there's Baptists in the name, then I don't, I don't know what you were expecting there. Um, you asked for comments. That's a comment. Perfectly fine. Um, Question five. Name two ways in which the Baptist confession agrees with the Westminster confession. Name two ways which it disagrees. So as we said throughout uh, all these lessons, ultimately the the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith used the Westminster confession as a a model, as a template for building their own confession. And it's something like 90% of the words agree uh, between the two. And only in the spots where the Baptists explicitly disagreed with the Presbyterians did they make changes there and, and the Congregationalists. But um, it's neither here nor there. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of agreement. Um, and one area that they actually agree in is that they're anti-sacramental, i.e. They're, they're not, they don't believe in baptismal regeneration. And they also reject church tradition as the grounds for understanding baptism. Um, And this sort of is a result of a historical split within Protestantism. Uh, The Lutherans and Anglicans coming out of the Reformation had a more of a view in line with Roman Catholicism uh, about uh, in regards to uh, baptismal regeneration, whereas the Reformed um, denied baptismal regeneration. So we are in agreement with our other Reformed brethren in that regard. 
but uh, we disagree that infants should be baptized, and we also disagree on the mode of baptism. Uh, question six, what is the basic reform pedo-baptist argument for infant baptism? Uh, so I'll note this question is specifically asking for the reformed argument for infant baptism. Uh, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and some Anglicans are going to have different reasons for baptizing infants, and that's not necessarily going to apply here. But ultimately, the primary reason reformed pedo-baptists believe in infant baptism is they think that the Old Testament calls for it. Now, this seems like a strange thing to our ears because baptism is a New Testament ordinance. Why would we think that um, the Old Testament would be what structures who we are to baptize? But this, this is what they hold to. Uh, to quote from Louis Burkhoff, the warrant for infant baptism is not to be sought in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. So this is where they're... Um, getting this from, or at least primarily. Some do try to make arguments from the New Testament, but the primary argument is from the Old Testament. So Waldron lays out their argument like this. Uh, the covenant of grace belongs not to believers only, but also to their children. The covenant sign in the Old Testament was circumcision, which applied to children as well as in certain cases to adults. Therefore, the covenant uh, sign in the New Testament is baptism, which has replaced circumcision and should be applied to both believers and their children. So they are making a one-to-one -one parallel, essentially, between the sign given in the Old Testament and the sign given in the New Testament. And if the sign in the Old Testament was given to children, therefore we should give the sign of baptism to our children. Does anybody have any questions about that? the fact that they're both signs and they would even say, um, I want to say, does Colossians relate the two? Colossians does relate the two, although obviously I don't think it relates the two in the way that they want it to, but um, Colossians chapter two, I think does. Yeah. So it's very specious ground. They just they look for a parallel between circumcision and baptism, and then they're like, oh, therefore they should be administered the same way, even though they don't do that exactly because they baptize both male children and female children. Like circumcision is only for males. You're 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 getting ahead in my uh, my presentation here, Andrew. <laughs> uh, but uh, so in that case, let's let's move on to question seven. What are the conclusive objections to this argument? So I'll actually deal with the argument that the covenant of grace is with believers and their children in question 11, because uh, that's more relevant there. But uh, here I do want to attack the idea that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between circumcision and baptism. And uh, like Andrew said, uh, no one, not even the Pado-Baptists, believe that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence because female children were not uh, circumcised in the Old Testament for obvious reasons, but we do baptize female disciples. So any paedo-baptist is going to have to admit there's at least something different between the two. And once you identify, what, well, okay, there is some difference, then you need to identify where are the similarities and where are the differences. And at that point, you have to start looking at the New Testament to identify that. And at that point, I think that you would basically come to the credo-baptist position the moment you allow the New Testament to speak for itself on what is um, and isn't uh, a parallel. Second uh, point, um, the Lord's table is actually, in my mind, a little bit closer of a, a connection to a sign in the Old Covenant. Uh, um, communion, Lord's Supper, was actually instituted on a Passover, right? They were eating the Passover meal, and that's when the Lord instituted that ordinance. So there's a connection there. Um, and if we read the Old uh, Testament, all those that were circumcised, regardless of age, were commanded to partake of the Passover meal. And yet many Pedo-Baptist churches, not all, some of them are actually consistent on this point, uh, but many will say, no, you, uh, our children don't partake of this meal. And the question is why? If you're, if you're paralleling things with the Old uh, Testament, why wouldn't you do that? Now, ultimately, I think it's probably because they recognize the verses in uh, 1 Corinthians where it says, "Who he who drinks eats and drinks of the Lord's body and blood unworthily um, is drinking judgment upon themselves. And they recognize, like, we can't have our 
children doing that, but um, it is an inconsistency. And then uh, thirdly, I want to bring up actually the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant doesn't have a sign applied to all those that are in the. Uh, yes, Pastor. I suppose they also, they also use the aspect where we would get uh, confirmation from, mm-hmm. where you have to discern the Lord's body. Mm-hmm. The, the language of discernment. So, so while in the Old Testament you didn't have to discern, now Paul's saying in the New Testament there has to be some kind of understanding, some kind of discerning of the Lord's body. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because uh, Fred Malone, the former Presbyterian, now, Credo Baptist said immediately as he was wrestling through this for a number of years, it entered his mind. Well, if now in the new covenant you have to discern the Lord's body and blood in the Lord's Supper, what about in baptism? Do you have to discern something? You have to. And so again, there's those linkages and also this yeah, and that's that's the most important point, actually, the fact that there is actually a discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant, which we will get into a little bit later. But that that is the 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 main point of difference between us. Uh, that also goes against their idea because they they'll say that one of the reasons why children should definitely be baptized is because the the anti-type is greater than the type, and it's greater to have children in it as well. And they see like, oh, the New Testament is more restrictive, therefore it's, it's, it would be less than its type. But then they would acknowledge there that it's the, the Lord's Supper is not less than its type because it excludes children in the New Testament. It's actually greater because it, it actually more greatly signifies the reality that it's represented, which is that the people who partake of it are believers, the ones who actually have an interest in this covenant mm-hmm. and not, uh, not people who are just having a symbolic association. And then finally, I did want to bring up uh, the Noahic covenant, right? The Noahic covenant doesn't have signs applied to its members at all. The sign is the rainbow, which we see whenever it rains, right? So clearly God doesn't necessarily create a sign based on this, this pattern. Each covenant may have sign applied, the sign applied in a different way. So we need on the grounds of that covenant itself to establish how the sign should be applied. We can't necessarily go looking to other covenants for a parallel. Yes. Do we know if um, Presbyterians covenant theology, if that's more, if that's more the primary thing that influences their view on baptism? Yes. Or the other way around that they kind of start with that and it influences their covenant theology? That's a difficult question. I would say that Presbyterian covenant theology ultimately comes from Zwingli because he's the first to really sort of begin to develop that process. And it seems to me that Zwingli was looking for a reason to support infant baptism. And um, that's how he came up with this, this idea. Now to say that all Presbyterians today don't start with their covenant theology and reason to infant baptism, I won't go out and say that definitively. But historically, that does seem to me to be the case, if that makes sense. You're, you're laughing. Do you have any comments about that? Yeah, I would just say, I would just say we, it's hard for us to grasp the setting that the reformers are finding themselves in. It's Christendom. There's no such thing as unbaptized people. Everybody's baptized. To be a citizen of the state, you're baptized. To, to be in, in, in any other way as an anarchist. So everybody, so imagine you're coming to, there's a retrieval taking place of an understanding of justification by faith alone, the gospel. And yet you're standing in a, in a time, an era, that you're surrounded by every communion that you're familiar with in the state around you is everyone's baptized. So you so you're, you're wrestling with, how do I deal with justification by faith alone, and yet I'm surrounded by paedo-baptism? How do, I, how do I wrestle with How do I deal with that? And so out of that arises a development of, because they know the Roman position of baptismal regeneration is in there, because they've embraced justification by faith alone because of God's grace. 
So, so that together begins to develop a, a, a theology to understand why our children are to be baptized in this present setting. So I, I would say it arises from that. So again, it's just hard for us to grasp that, that it was across the board in their setting, and they're thinking through things for the first time, uh, biblically, in the aspect of retrieval and reformation. So, so, so let's be sympathetic to those men and be thankful as they were progressing and understand that they are men of their time. It's like you said, we performed our baptism, right? Do I? It's like you said, we performed our baptism too. Yeah, 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 yeah. An understanding, a reformation of the gospel begins to bleed into then our understanding of the doctrine of the church. There couldn't be a, a reformation of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, until there was an understanding: who is the church? What is the church? And so there has to be a reformation of the gospel that moves us into a reformation of our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church, which then begins to affect our understanding of sacraments or ordinances. Does that make sense? Yeah. One leads to the other. Sorry about that, John. Oh, yeah. No problem. All right. So now um, I lost my place. Uh, moving on to question eight. What are some of the arguments for infant baptism drawn from the New Testament? Um so there's, there's four that um, we have here. Uh, the first one is going to be some, some, uh, some reference to one of the passages where Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Could I get uh, someone to read Matthew 19, 13 through 15? So from here, we have uh, Pato Baptist trying to make the argument that by withholding baptism, you're hindering um, uh, children from coming to Christ. And we would say, no, we are not. Um, first of all, this is a general statement. It's not even saying specifically the children of believers don't hinder the ch children of believers. This is a general statement. Don't hinder children from coming to Christ, to which we would obviously agree. If any child comes wants to come to Christ, we do not hinder them. We want them to come to Christ. But that doesn't it doesn't logically follow, therefore, that they should be baptized, right? If we believe that baptism is only to be applied to those that have come to Christ, then I mean that's that's all there is to it. It's an inappropriate sign. Um, children are free to come to Christ. We do not want to stand in their way, but that doesn't mean that they should be baptized. It doesn't logically follow. Yes. It's true. Even as a child would come to be baptized, whereas they don't maybe understand, and maybe they have more difficulty in faith than Oh, we're told unless we have a faith like a child, we won't enter the kingdom of God. So it's an interesting parallel there. Um, Acts two thirty nine is is very frequently quoted. I'll give you guys a second to go there, but I'm, I'm sure some of you have this memorized by this point. Um, Acts 2.39, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are, are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And I pause there because almost uh, Whenever I hear Pado Baptists bring this up, they only ever quote the first part of that verse. It's never the whole verse. I've, I think I've literally heard one Pado Baptist once quote the whole verse the first time they brought it up. Because if you just take the first half of that verse, it does seem to indicate um, Pado Baptism. The promise here in context is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul, uh, Peter, this is him preaching at Pentecost, has just gotten through talking about the Holy Spirit. So the promise of the Holy Spirit is unto you and to all your uh, and to your children to which they take it's like oh it's a promise of the new covenant that our children will have the holy spirit but then you have the the second part and to all that are afar off even as many as the lord our god shall call 
So that refers to the Gentiles there. Those are all that are far off. And it's actually restricting it a little bit, as many as are the Lord our God shall call. So to those that Peter is preaching to, if they do not believe, not all of them will receive the Holy Spirit. The same to their children. Not all of them will, uh, if they don't believe, they won't receive the Holy Spirit. And to all those that are far off, not all of them will receive the Holy Spirit. It's restricted to as many as are the, Lord our, the Lord our God will call. And what's being referred to here is the inward call, the call of the Spirit um, that regenerates and causes them to come to faith. And just as additional evidence that this isn't what this is talking about, verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So it's specifically making the point, all they that gladly received the word were baptized. And um, looking at uh, the description of Pentecost in the Old Testament, it says that this was a feast that you were supposed to bring your children to and educate them about what the feast was. So there would have been plenty of children there at the feast in Jerusalem. But it specifically says only those that gladly receive the word were baptized. Um, a second uh, point that gets uh, brought up a lot is um, household baptisms which, where are my household baptisms? Oh, okay. Uh, another point that gets brought up is household baptisms, but this is really going into the next question, so I'm going to jump there. Question nine, how may a uh, Baptist interpret the household baptism uh, passages of the New Testament? Um, so oftentimes you will see uh, in the New Testament, it's mentioned that an entire household was baptized, and Pado baptists will try to make the case that, well, because it's the entire household, this must have included infants, therefore infants were baptized. Um, and it also gives credence to the idea, uh, we'll see that in their covenant theology, that the covenant of grace is made with believers and their children. Um, so when they say, oh, the head of households is converted, therefore everybody underneath them uh, should be baptized. So an example of this is um, Acts uh, 16, the Philippian jailer, um, and I have seen this brought up before, but I think this is actually a really bad example, and it literally proves the opposite point of what's being made. So I will read this. It's Acts 16, verses 22 through 34. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Uh, this is after Paul and Silas have been preaching. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison uh, and made their feet uh, fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison's door, prison door open, uh, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm for we are all here. Then he called out for a light and it sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake the word unto him, the word of the Lord and to all those that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and he was baptized, baptized, he and all his straight away. And when he had brought them into his house, he sat meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. So I don't know that God could have made it any clearer that all these that were baptized believed um, prior to being baptized. And they're, they're rejoicing, right? We don't think of infants as rejoicing. Um, that they believed in the word of God, right? Um, so I think this is a very bad example. It goes very clearly out of its way to make sure that you understand that all these that believe prior to being baptized. Um, there's another example in 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 12. Uh, now this I say that every one of uh, you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanos. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. So here we have the reference. 
and I baptize also the household of Stephanos. And I want to make it clear that um, we shouldn't be building our theology off ambiguous examples, because here it does not say one way or the other whether or not there were infants in this household. It very well could have been another scenario like we just saw in Acts 16, where all the um, uh, all those believe first, right? Um, there's nothing in the passage that indicates one way or the other. So when we come to an ambiguous example, we shouldn't use that to interpret clear passages about what baptism is about and who it's for. Um, so while examples are helpful and sometimes uh, illustrating how truth is to be applied in Scripture, when it comes to an uh, ambiguous passage, we shouldn't be building our uh, theology off it. Um, then 10, dealing with the last uh, New Testament passage that's used, why may a pedo-baptist not use 1 Corinthians 7.14 to support his case? Could I get somebody to read um, 1 Corinthians 7.14? So, and I have seen this out there. People will say, uh, our children are holy, therefore they should be baptized, not recognizing that there's a leap going on there and they need to explain it a little bit. They need to do a better argument than just that, right? Um, for example, King Saul was holy. King Saul of the Old Testament was holy. He was anointed by God, and yet he was obviously not a believer. And if he were alive today, nobody would baptize him, right? Just because God has declared something to be holy doesn't automatically mean that we would baptize that person. Um, and in context of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is addressing uh, those that want to divorce their spouse because they're unbelievers. Um, and here Paul is saying that, no, you, by remaining in relationship with them, are sanctifying them. And even your children are, are, are sanctified. They are holy. Um, so it's, it's talking about remaining in a marriage situation. It's not talking about whether somebody should be baptized or not. It doesn't say anything about baptism. No, it doesn't say anything about baptism, nor is the concept anywhere there. It's like they, they read all these passages through the lens of um, baptism. Like, it's like all talking about it somehow. Like, like you read earlier with, like, oh, let the children come to, uh, come to me. Like, when it says that's like, all right, does that mean they should take the Lord's Supper why is it talking anymore about baptism and the Lord's Supper? They would say it's not saying here. It's like the children are holy. Okay, so should you give them the Lord's Supper? Well, why are you saying that means you should be baptized? There's no attempt to do that. It's just inferred always that it's got to link to baptism somehow. Yeah. The text gives no more indication that it's talking about baptism than the Lord's Supper. I don't. I don't actually follow the Presbyterian that there are two suppositions for the text, and I think that's why. Of this argument comes back to ecclesiology um, is a member of the new covenant. Um, the uh, and I said that that first, and then you can properly interpret, you know, with, with a different way those those texts. If, if they're being consistent, you know, they are going to see that pattern in those texts, right? Because those are the presuppositions. So, speaking of covenant theology, uh, question eleven. Why may the Abrahamic covenant not be equated with the covenant of grace? So if you've, uh, for those that have been in the men's read, the book we've been going through is constantly made reference to the Abrahamic covenant as the covenant of grace. And that's because the author of that book is a Presbyterian and that's, that's how they view things. Um, because the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace, it's an administration of the covenant of grace and the new covenant is a administration of the covenant of grace we can infer things about the old or things about the old covenant will also apply to the new covenant. Um, and Waldron lays out the uh, the argument this way: uh, major premise: the Abrahamic covenant was made with believers and their seed. Minor premise: the Abrahamic covenant was the covenant of grace. Conclusion: the covenant of grace is made with believers and their seed. Um, so before I deal with this, does anybody want to, to take a stab at why this is wrong? There's at least two errors here. Pam. Um, well, there's um, a couple of verses in Psalm 103. I think that might have 
address this. Mm -hmm. It says, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments. Mm -hmm. So what I was thinking was that um, even circumcision, that didn't save. No, it didn't. It didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Although that's, that's, um, that's part of the issue right there. Um, the second premise, the Abrahamic covenant wasn't the covenant of grace. It wasn't. Um, uh, the covenant of grace doesn't revolve around land promises in, um, in Israel, right? Which is an aspect of the, the uh, covenant of, of uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Um, so it's wrong to equate it with the covenant of grace. Now we know that the covenant of grace, all that are in it will be saved. So we look at the old covenant with many members in it that um, were not saved. They were, they were members of the Abrahamic covenant. They were circumcised, but they were not saved. But also I want to dispute the fact that the Abrahamic covenant was even made with believers in their seed. It wasn't made with believers in their seed. It was made with Abraham and his seed. That's why Abraham's children, regardless of whether they were believers or not, inherited that land, inherited the promised land, because that was that was for them. We agree that um, the Abrahamic covenant has types and shadows of the covenant of grace, of the new covenant. There's, there's um, typology going on, but we wouldn't say that it's an, a different administration of uh, the covenant of grace. And ultimately, the New Testament teaches there's a discontinuity of the covenants on precisely the point of who is a member of the covenant. So as was alluded to earlier, Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13, this is um, the author of Hebrews now referring to Jesus. But he hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Uh, for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he make, he have made the first one old. Now that which is decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So God finds fault. He's, talking about the mosaic covenant here but the same would apply to the abrahamic covenant right um he needs a new he's making a new covenant because none of the other covenants prior to this do this um he's finding fault that the previous covenant those in it couldn't keep it so now he's establishing a covenant that people will remain in that he's going to write his law on their hearts so we recognize that if you are a member of the new covenant, this is a reality for you. You will continue in this covenant. You will be saved. He will forgive your sins. And your, the law is written on your heart. We know, once again, that there are many infants this never happens to, regardless of whether they've been baptized or not. Therefore, we know these are not in the new covenant by default. And if they're not in the covenant of grace by default, we should not apply the covenant signed to them. Andrew. Ultimately, that ties to what scripture says it means when... It says the promises are to Abraham and to his seed. Um, Galatians 3 provides an interpretation for us. It says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one into thy seed, which is Christ. Ultimately, the, the, uh, the new covenant promises, the covenant of grace, is fulfilled in Christ. And so, in order to be a partaker of it, you don't have to be the seeds of a believer. You need to be more than that. You need to be the, the seed of Christ. You need to be in Christ because that's to whom the promises are made. And we know that only believers of Christ are in Christ, not mere descendants of believers. Amen. All right. Uh, were there any other questions or comments? All right.
Um, so question 12, if we're now shifting from uh, who it's uh, to be administered to, to how it's to be administered, how baptism is to be administered to. Um, what are the three required elements in the outward administration of baptism? Uh, so there's three, in water, in the name of the Trinity, and by immersion. Now, I don't know anybody who disputes that baptism should be done in water, so I'm not necessarily going to prove that, but obviously all over the place, baptism is done in water. Um, in the modern day, there is a dispute over who you should be baptized in the name of. Uh, we think it's, it's very obvious that the New Testament teaches you should be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, uh, verses 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So here it's laid out, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, a group of Unitarians, specifically Oneness Pentecostals, dispute this because they view God as one person. So they wouldn't even necessarily make a distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit there. Um, they say that you should be baptized only in the name of the Lord Jesus. And there are spots in Acts that say, uh, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, we would say that that's just a shorthand. Obviously, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus is to be baptized in the, Father, Son, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the formula we should use. Uh, but they want to say that the formula that should be used is only in the name of Lord Jesus. So, for example, Acts 19.5, uh, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they're taking that as the formula there. But ultimately, I think this passage actually subtly undermines that doctrine. So starting at verse 1 of that same chapter. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples there, he said unto them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So, Paul's question here doesn't make a lot of sense if you're just baptized into the name of Christ, right? When they say they don't know who the Holy Spirit is, he asks, into what then were you baptized? Implying that, well, you should have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. Why were you not done that? Um, so even the texts and acts that, like to, uh, that one as Pentecostals like to point to don't prove the point they're trying to make. Um, are there any questions or comments? All right. Question 13. What is the meaning of the word baptize? Um, so the meaning of the word baptism is to immerse or to dip. And I have my Greek lexicon here, which is actually um, compiled by a Lutheran. So not necessarily inclined to agree with the, uh, the Baptist um, position on what baptism means. But uh, this is a uh, Donker's lexicon. Donker says, baptizo, the Greek word baptizo means to immerse, to dip, to plunge, or to wash. So these are, these are all what we would associate with baptism. And this does indeed, historically, as far as we can tell from surviving evidence, appear to be the earliest form of baptism practiced in the church. Um, the Didache, which is a uh, first or early second century uh, church document, probably from Egypt, has this section on baptism. Concerning, concerning baptism, baptize thus, having first rehearsed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost in running water. But if thou hast no running water, baptize in other water. And if thou canst not in cold, then in warm. But if thou hast neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And before the baptism, let the baptizer and him who is baptized fast, and any others who are able. And thou shalt bid him who is baptized to fast one or two days before. So here we see that they're looking for large sources of water, right? Uh, running water here would be like water running through a river, right? So uh, baptize in running water. But if you don't have uh, running water, then baptize in other water. But if you don't have either of those, then pour water three times in the head. So basically pouring 
rather than an immersion is a last resort, which makes sort of sense if this does come from Egypt, because in Egypt there isn't a lot of water, so there might not have been a body of water around to immerse someone in. But it does appear that they were practicing um, immersion. Uh, any questions or comments on that? So that is possible. Um, the the passage in question is Acts eight. Uh, it just uh, the Philippian eunuch says, um, or not the Philippian eunuch, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, excuse me, uh, says, "Here is water. What hinders me from being baptized?" Um, so it doesn't describe how big the water is. That's another case of. Uh, it could have. It could have been, but again, that's building a doctrine off an ambiguous text. You're right. It could have been very small and maybe pouring was done, but we aren't told. So we shouldn't necessarily build a doctrine of baptism on that. This is, and, and also, in here, I thought it was very interesting, very confusing, reading the two together. Mm -hmm. um, but he made the same statement that you did. There should not be contention from one denomination mm -hmm. to the other about the ways I would say that immersion more accurately um, describes what baptism is supposed to represent. You even have the, the parallel of buried with him in baptism, raised in life. And that's what you see in a, a baptism by immersion. You're, you're buried and then you rise again from the grave. So to do it in another way starts breaking the parallels. Although I wouldn't be super dogmatic of it, or I wouldn't be super hard about that in that regard. Um, Yes. Uh, to wash their um, pot or uh, their uh, dinnerware, you mean? If there is, I'm not a, I'm not aware of it. I know that. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, you're going to say Yeah, the, the one I had heard was in the New Testament where it's describing the tradition of the Pharisees, how they wash their hands and they wash all these things that like, oh, well, the, like just just like today, you wouldn't like immerse a, a, a pot. You'd put it in the dishwasher and it would just get wet on the outside. Well, they were actually going down to the river and sticking it in the river to clean it off, you know, or they had a jar that they would stick it in to clean it off. So it did actually mean immersion. Um. Moving on to question 14, because we are almost out of time. Uh, what does even the figurative use of the word baptize, or why does even the figurative use of the word baptize refute sprinkling or pouring as modes of baptism? So we've got three categories of figurative use. Uh, the first is the secular use in Greek. It's used in regard to calamities and ruins and troubles, cares and poverty and debts and stupor and sleep and ignorance and in pollution. So... What makes more sense to say I was I was immersed in troubles, I was immersed in cares, or I was poured in cares or sprinkled in cares? Like, it would make the most sense to say immersion. Um, Waldron does reference the Septuagint. He references two passages. I couldn't find where his uh, the first passage he referenced, Psalm sixty nine two, actually made use of the word baptism. Um, it might have been a typo, or I might have just missed it, but I couldn't find it. But his second, um, his second uh, verse does actually use the Greek word baptizo in there. Isaiah 21.4, my heart wanders and transgression overwhelms me. My soul is occupied with fear. 
So the underlying Greek word uh, for baptism is translated as overwhelms here, which overwhelms we could understand with the idea of being immersed. You're immersed beyond what you can handle. You're overwhelmed. It doesn't make a lot of sense necessarily to say you were, uh, my transgression sprinkled me, at least not in this context, or uh, my transgression was poured out on me. We also have figurative use in the New Testament itself. Um, Mark 10, uh, 38 through 39. But Jesus said unto them, ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Verse 39. And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I am drink of and be baptized. Uh, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, baptized with shall ye be baptized. So here, um, it's not talking about literal baptism. It's talking about the, um, the trouble that Christ is going to go through. And ultimately, it's going to be talking about uh, Jesus being immersed in the wrath of God on the cross, right? But what makes more sense in this context to be immersed? Uh, Jesus is saying, um, can you be immersed with the immersion that I am immersed with? Well, that makes sense. Uh, can you be poured with the pouring that I am poured with? Doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, can you be sprinkled with the sprinkling that I'm sprinkled with? Uh, like, I guess you could try and fit that in there, but I don't think it works very well. Um, then 1 Corinthians uh, 10 verses 1 through 2. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this isn't talking about uh, water baptism, although there's the parallel of going through the Red Sea. Um, but this baptism makes more sense from an immersion perspective, right? The cloud, they were in the cloud when the cloud descended on the camp. They were immersed in it. The cloud wasn't poured on them. They weren't sprinkled with it. They were immersed in that cloud. So we can see even the figurative meaning in the New Testament would indicate immersion. Now, uh, at that point, I'm done. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Yes. That is that is actually the one point I'll give to those that want to say there uh, it can mean pouring because we do hear the Holy Spirit being poured out on people. Um, so I at least see a little bit of a parallel there, but ultimately it's, yeah, it's poured out onto an immersion. They're completely immersed, metaphorically speaking. It's not merely a pouring on the head. Yes, Ben. Did, did sprinkling come from, or not come from, but get popular from this baptism? I don't, I don't see any reason to do it. Um, I would imagine so. I know that they appeal to... Um, Texts such as like the blood was sprinkled upon the um, the uh, the law of the covenant um, and stuff like that. Like there are a couple of verses about um, sprinkling, but none of it's connected to baptism necessarily. Uh, I would imagine it's probably the case because obviously um, it's easier to sprinkle an infant than it is to uh, dunk them. Although I will say that actually the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, does still full immerse their infants. Um, they know Greek, so they would know what the word means. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I would imagine that's probably the case, but I don't have the historical documentation to actually prove that to you. Was there another hand that I saw? Oh, yes. I was going to make a comment on uh, pouring and immersion. Pouring is kind of immersion, just you're immersing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, to say that pouring can't result in immersion is... Um, it's a false dichotomy. All right. Anything else? Oh, yes. How does um, how does the um, I, I know there's nuance to this, but uh, rebaptism. What's what's the what's the standard uh, situation someone comes in and baptizes set out of false confession? Is that something that we do here? We do, we do do uh, rebaptisms in that regard. We would say that it's not a rebaptism. It's right. yeah, but yeah, but ultimately, you'd probably want to talk to one of the elders about that because they can give you a better answer than I can. 
<laughs> All right. If there are no more questions or comments, let's close here in a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for the for the lesson that we've had today, Father. We ask that you would help us as we go into worship, that we would uh, still be open to learn, that we would receive your truth uh, with an open heart. And Father, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, recognizing that you have saved us and that we owe everything to you. Bless our time and fellowship after, Father, and uh, bless the rest of our day. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sean. Yep.